Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. We're beginning a new series of episodes today entitled Getting Serious About Godliness. Uh, before we jump into that, though, let me uh, just give you a quick plug. We have a conference coming up here at All Saints Presbyterian Church uh, featuring Peter Lightheart, uh, a theologian and pastor and author who will be well known to many of you, speaking on the subject, What is Creation? He's coming here on the 12th and 13th of November, which is a Friday and a Saturday. And I want to encourage you, if you've not signed up, to consider doing so. Those of you who know Peter will know he's an extremely insightful and prolific uh, student of the scriptures and theologian and writer. He has written tons of stuff, uh, many of which books uh, some of you will have come across. If you've not come across him, this is your chance not just to hear him, but to meet him in person. Um, we've got uh, two full days. So if, you, if you're not able to make the whole thing, don't worry. Uh, come in the evening on Friday and come on the Saturday if you're at work on Friday. Totally understand that. But um, it will be fantastic uh, to see as many folks as possible there. We've got a bunch of people already signed up um, and it's great value. And if money is a problem, then let us know and we can do something about that as well. So 12th and 13th of November, please come along uh, and you can find out all the information you need to know on the church website, www.allsaintskirk.com. Okay, so what are we doing in this new series of podcasts? Well, what I'd like to do is to take an approach to thinking about godliness in the Christian life, which I have noticed is somewhat lacking uh, in many uh, contemporary writings. Many contemporary writings uh, spend a good deal of time focusing on individual issues of godliness, uh, but at the level of how they help us to change much, not all, but much of what they have to say seems to boil down to try harder. The level of detailed, thoughtful, theological engagement with um, how we work as human beings, how our relationship with Christ ought to shape us, and so on, is somewhat thin. And perhaps that reflects the fact that we don't have the theological stature of our forefathers in the faith, if that's the case, then maybe what we need to do is to go back to some of those forefathers in the faith and see if we can't recover from them a richer and deeper understanding of how to approach the question of godliness as a whole. It's all very well, isn't it, to think about particular issues that may be uh, temptation for you as an individual or aspects of particular relationships like between siblings or between husband and wife or the kinds of challenges you may face at work. And there's a huge amount of value in reflecting specifically on um, ethical questions and questions of godliness that arise in those situations. What should I do if sort of questions? But at some point, we need to go back and take as a somewhat deeper view of what it is that makes us tick and what ought to shape and motivate us uh, in our lives, whatever the issue is. So um, what I'm hopeful is that um, the next few episodes may give um, fuel or food for our journey towards godliness in whatever area of life you may be particularly uh, concerned about at the present time. And to that end, what I want to do is to go back to one of my favorite um, theological resources, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. John Calvin is one of my favorite theologians. I'm actually teaching through this book with some of the young people here at All Saints, uh, the ninth and 10th graders, we're working through John Calvin's Institutes. And we've got to book three, there are four books in total, um, book three, chapter six, which begins uh, a kind of mini book within a book, uh, which 
some later analysts and commentators have called the life of the Christian man. It really is a series of theological meditations and reflections on what it is that ought to drive and create godliness in us. It's extremely helpful, I found it, and I hope you'll find it helpful too. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through sections of it, try and give you a, sh- a sense of the shape of it as a whole, make some comments on it, and uh, we'll do uh, chapter six today, Lord willing, and then we'll work through um, bits of the following chapters uh, in the coming episode. So without further ado, let me jump straight in. and uh, We'll start with Calvin and... Chapter 6, section 1 is entitled, The Plan of the Treaties. Here goes, quote, The object of regeneration, as we have said, is to manifest in the life of believers a harmony and agreement between God's righteousness and their obedience, and thus to confirm the adoption that they have received as sons, unquote. A couple of comments about that. When Calvin uses the term regeneration here, he's referring back to what he said previously about repentance. He says in a previous chapter, I interpret repentance as regeneration. So he seems to use the term regeneration in a slightly different way to how it's sometimes used in some theological works. What he means is repentance is the whole heart and mind and life of a person turning from sin to Christ, from ungodliness to the living God. That's what regeneration is. That's what the new life is. It's the transformation of the whole being. And the purpose of it is to bring our hearts, our minds, our lives into conformity with what God has said about us. Conformity between God's righteousness and our obedience. That reflects the fact that God has declared righteously that we are forgiven. We are righteous in God's sight. That's not going to change about us. That's a gift that we've received. It concerns our status in Christ. The challenge now is to bring our lives into conformity with that. And that really is what the project of godliness is all about. It's to bring our lives as we live them into conformity with what God has said. God has said wonderful things about us. We're forgiven. We're one with his son. We're adopted into his family. What a tragedy it is if we live lives that don't reflect that reality. The object of repentance regeneration, renewal by the living God, is to bring our lives into conformity with what God has said. Calvin continues, the law of God contains in itself that newness by which his image can be restored in us. Um, That reflects Calvin's extremely high view of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. The law is not a big stick that God whacks us around the head with to make us feel terrible so that we feel wretched and horrible and I need to go and find forgiveness now. And then having been forgiven, we go back and get beaten up by the law again. No, the law of God is a teacher, and indeed it contains within us that newness designed to lead the people of God in the ways of truth and wisdom and righteousness. This reflects um, some of Calvin's Old Testament theology. The people of Israel are a newly created people. Uh, Think of some of the imagery by which they were established as God's people. They were led through the waters of the Red Sea then through the waters of the Jordan to be established in their own land. They emerged out of the waters, just as the original creation emerged out of the waters of chaos at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And so the way that Israel is depicted is this new community. And what's the word that God speaks to them? Well, the word that God spoke in the beginning is all the words of creation by which the new world in Genesis 1 was called into being. What's the word then? that God speaks to his new creation, the people of Israel, these new people that he loves, set his affection upon and wants to lead in righteousness. The word that he speaks is the word of his law. 
He speaks his law to them to renew and transform them. So we've got to get away from this idea that God's law is a bad thing designed to beat us up and make us feel bad. Um, sometimes we do feel guilty and we are driven to seek forgiveness in Christ, but God's law is a wonderful thing and it contains within it what we need. But, Calvin says, because of our slowness, well, we need many goads and helps, that is, we need prodded and poked to strive for godliness. And therefore, he continues, quote, it will be profitable to assemble from various passages of scripture a pattern for the conduct of life in order that those who heartily repent may not err in their zeal. In other words, we need lots and lots of motivations drawn from all over the scriptures, and Calvin is going to try and give it. Now, in the next uh, long paragraph or two in the rest of that section, he, Calvin contrasts himself with um, what some of the church fathers did. His approach is not going to be what the church fathers did. He, he commends that approach. Um, he points out that the church fathers wrote extended treatises and preached extended sermons, which some of which were written down and have been published, that were available in his day, that were available in our day. It's great to read that stuff, dealing with how to approach um, particular aspects of the Christian life. They compose exhortations on just a single virtue, he says. But what he wants to do here is to speak more briefly, which is kind of funny if you know anything about how much Calvin writes. Anyway, he was his aim to speak more briefly and to give an outline of the motivations and other factors that drive us to godliness. And that's um, what he's doing in these five chapters, six through 10 of his institute. Okay, so section two. Motives for the Christian life is the heading supplied by the translators and, and um, editors. And this is really what this section is about. This scriptural instruction of which we speak, Calvin says, has two main aspects. The first is that the love of righteousness to which we are otherwise not at all inclined by nature may be instilled and established in our hearts. The second, that a rule may be set forth for us that does not let us wander about in our zeal for righteousness. Next paragraph. There are in scripture very many and excellent reasons for con commending righteousness, not a few of which we have already noted in various places. He's building up to the first big motivation that he's going to set before us. And the first great motivation for godliness, he outlines right here. This is a quote again. From what foundation may righteousness better arise than from the scriptural warning that we must be holy because our God is holy. Leviticus 19, 1 Peter 1. That is the first place that he goes. This is familiar if you've ever read uh, Leviticus or 1 Peter. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, I'm holy. It's all over Leviticus. And it's in 1 Peter. It's clearly something which um, uh, the New Testament writers don't think is just to be consigned to the history books of Leviticus, not that that's just a history book anyway, but um, this is a fundamental priority for us to recognize that our lives need to be shaped into conformity with the character of the God whom we worship. But more than that, Calvin points out over the page here, um, when we hear mention of our union with God, he writes, let us remember that holiness must be its bond, not because we come into communion with him, by virtue of our holiness. Rather, we ought first to cleave unto him so that infused with his holiness, we may follow whether he, wherever he calls. Just think about that for a second. It's not the case that 
we're so holy that we enter communion with the living God. It's not the case that our holiness draws us to God and we need to strive to build it up. Rather, it's the case that the same holy, like the word, holy spirit who fills Christ fills us. It's that Holy Spirit that's united us with Christ, united us with him so that we come into fellowship with God. And because holiness is the bond, that bond is constituted by perfect and pure holiness. It's almost unthinkable, isn't it, to imagine living a life which is not in conformity with the bond that unites us to Christ. Just think of it in those pictorial terms for a second. The bond that unites us to Christ is pure and perfect holiness. It's the spirit of holiness. And so the holiness to which we're called is the holiness of that bond with Christ. Just in practical terms here, obviously it's no surprise that we feel from time to time distant from the God, from the living God, when we drift from righteousness into sin, into unholiness. What have we done? Well, what we've done is we've allowed our lives to contradict the bond by which we're united with the living God. So it's no surprise that we then feel um, that kind of sense of guilt and remorse and sort of distance from God. In one sense, we are distant from God. We have distanced ourselves from him. That's what's at stake here. But by his grace, he doesn't let us go. We feel that distance, though, because in our lives, we've chosen a path that leads us away from him. It's just worth remembering that. Um, the, the sense of um, coldness that we sometimes feel as believers can, in many cases, arise from exactly this. We have, in effect, not severed the bond that unites us with Christ, but we've lived in contradiction with it. By contrast, when, by the grace of the Spirit, we walk in a way that keeps in step with the Spirit, to quote the Apostle Paul, we feel a kind of closeness to him because we're living in a way that reflects in us his character and the the unity that we have with him. Calvin continues um, with this theme of holiness, highlighting um, how it was displayed in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, I'll read a couple of sentences just to uh, highlight the really graphic illustration he uses. It's kind of stirring, really. Um, To what purpose are we rescued from the wickedness and pollution of the world in which we were submerged? if we allow ourselves throughout life to wallow in these? Like, what's the point of being rescued from sin just to go back to wallow in it again? Reminds me of the um, Old Testament people of Israel who, having been redeemed from slavery and sin and idolatry and, um, and the kind of brutal treatment that they experience in the land of Egypt, and they get into the wilderness with the living God. And what they want to do? Well, they want to go back to Egypt because they had cucumbers there. They had melons there. They had garlic there. It's like, we so much like them, aren't we? We're capable of being drawn away from righteousness and holiness by such trivial considerations. And what is the point? What would be the point in being renewed and redeemed from sin if we're just going to go back and wallow in it all over again? He continues, moreover, at the same time, scripture admonishes us that to be reckoned among the people of the Lord, we must dwell in the holy city of Jerusalem, holy city. Remember, he's thinking in these Old Testament theology terms. And he's consecrated this city to himself, So it's unlawful to profane it with the impurity of its inhabitants. Whence these declarations that there be a 
there will be a place in God's tabernacle for those who walk without blemish and strive after righteousness. Without holiness, you can't see the Lord. And much of the time, we can't see the Lord in that sense. We don't have that closeness to him because we lack the holiness that he longs to create in us by his spirit. We've got to be honest about that. Uh, Much of the frustration, much of the sense of distance and coldness and lostness that we have in our relationship with the living God is our own stupid fault because we allow ourselves to be corrupted and polluted by the sin of the world rather than being rather than striving to keep in step with the Spirit and to be filled daily with the Spirit so that we walk in communion with him. He concludes this section, It is highly unfitting that the sanctuary in which he dwells should be a stable crammed with filth. Oh, Calvin, we love the uh, graphic language you use. Um, well, that, it is unfitting. The Lord won't dwell in an impure vessel. He longs for us to be sanctified by the Spirit whom he's caused to dwell in us. So then, section three, more details on the, the motives that drive godliness. The Christian life receives its strongest motive, Calvin says, to God's work through the person and redemptive act of Christ. Here, um, Calvin indulges in a little bit of uh, historical and philosophical reflection. He's contrasting his approach to this whole issue of godliness with that of the philosophers, quote-unquote. And he's recognizing, he quotes people like Cicero and Seneca, he's recognizing that ancient philosophers in Greek and Roman traditions did commend virtues in all kinds of different ways. Think of the ancient Stoics, think of people like Marcus Aurelius, uh, and that there's actually a great deal of kind of borrowed secondhand wisdom in those writings, albeit wisdom that's not acknowledged, the source of which is not acknowledged. It's kind of borrowed secondhand unknowingly from the scriptures in almost all cases. Um, and uh, all the stuff that's good in there, you can find in scripture, but it comes to us in those philosophical writings in a very different form. Calvin highlights um, They wish particularly to exhort us to virtue, and to do so, they announce merely that we should live in accordance with nature. It's a somewhat um, obscure but quite important point that all of the secular writings of the ancient philosophers and all of the modern um, self-help gurus and guides are really exhorting us to live in a manner that's in accordance with what we are as human beings. But there is there no acknowledgement of two things. First, the fact that we're created by the living God. And second, the fact that we're redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit. There's a, an attempt to carve out a, uh, a picture of how the human life ought to be lived by looking at how human beings work. People, people will look at... Um, the social sciences or psychology or neuropsychology or uh, other aspects of um, how we tick. And they'll try and forge a path of living fruitfully and living rightly that's based on those things. And sometimes they get things right, sometimes they get things wrong, but always they're getting things right for the wrong reason because they're trying to work out just by looking at human beings what our nature is. What Calvin wants to highlight is that it's the creator of human beings and the redeemer of us who has a, an, a, the fundamental things to say about how we ought to live. Pardon me, he, he continues. 
But scripture, by contrast with these ancient philosophers, draws its exhortation from the true fountain. It not only enjoins us to refer our life to God, its author, the creator, but after it is taught that we have degenerated from the true origin and condition of our creation, it also adds that Christ, through whom we return into favor with God, has been set before us as an example whose pattern we ought to express in this life. So there's the, the basic function that Christ serves in this connection as an example who's, whom we ought to follow. But it goes deeper than that. It's not just that we seek to follow his example, but rather through reflecting on the details of our relationship with God through Christ. We get a whole swathe of additional uh, considerations and motivations that drive us towards increasing faithfulness, holiness, godliness. And this really gets to the heart of this whole chapter. This is in section three, halfway through section three. I want to read this um, uh, paragraph, one or two sentences at a time, and then I'm going to pause and just um, uh, talk through each of them. Then the scripture, Calvin writes, finds occasion for exhortation in all the benefits of God that it lists for us and in the individual parts of our salvation. Here goes. Ever since God revealed himself farther to us, we must prove our ungratefulness to him if we do not in turn show ourselves his sons. Ever since Christ cleansed us with the washing of his blood and imparted this cleansing through baptism, it will be unfitting to befoul ourselves with new pollutions. Ever since, you see the repeating phrase, ever since, ever since, ever since, he's coming up with again and again and again, new motives for godliness. Ever since he engrafted us into his own body, we must take a special care not to disfigure ourselves who are his members with any spot or blemish. Ever since Christ himself, who is our head, ascended into heaven, it behooves us having laid aside love of earthly things, wholeheartedly to aspire heavenward. Ever since the Holy Spirit dedicated us as temples to God, we must take care that God's glory shine through us and must not commit anything to defile ourselves with the filthiness of sin. Finally, ever since both our souls and our bodies were destined for heavenly incorruption and an unfading crown, we ought to strive manfully to keep them pure and uncorrupted till the day of the Lord. These, I say, are the most auspicious foundations upon which to establish one's life. Then he has a little dig at the philosophers. Those who would look, those would look in vain, sorry, <laughs> one would look in vain for the like of these among the philosophers who in their commendation of virtue never rise above the natural dignity of man. Let me just talk you through those um, individual ever since sentences again. Just think about it for a second. Ever since God revealed himself father to us, we will prove our ungratefulness to him if we do not in turn show ourselves his sons. How perverse it would be that you've been adopted into the family of the living God. You've been given a place in his home. You've been welcomed into all the privileges of being his child. You've received an inheritance from him who's a father who never put a foot wrong. Uh, all of us who are earthly fathers know that despite our best efforts to be the best dad we can be, we fail in a multitude of ways, but this father loves you. This father has given everything for you. And you're just going to move into his home, accept all those things from him and not change a single thing about your life, proving your ungratefulness to him by not living as his son. What a crazy thing to do. We are brought into the household of the living God. He loves us. His son gave himself for us. Our elder brother laid down his life 
Don't we want to live within that family in such a way that it's clear that we're part of that family? Ever since, Calvin continues, Christ cleansed us with the washing of his blood and imparted this cleansing through baptism, it would be unfitting to befoul ourselves with new pollutions. This is almost amusing in this like You realise how perverse it would be. You know, somebody goes out of their way to, you know, they're washing their car and they come across the front yard and they come and wash your car and make it all nice and beautiful and shiny and they wax it and they polish the wheels and everything's looking really spick and span and you can see through the windscreen for the first time in a couple of weeks because everything's nice and clean and you think, great, now my car's clean. I can go and drive it through a muddy field again and splatter mud all over the sides. It would be be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Somebody's taken the time and the trouble to clean your car. Maybe they've cleaned the inside as well. Maybe they've all the carpets are nice and you realise what colour it used to be when you first got that car with its nice dark blue carpet rather than smudgy brown carpet. And so you're going to jump in there with your muddy boots on again just because it's nice and clean now. It's just crazy. It's just not the way that we do things. We've been cleansed by the living God, Calvin says, with the washing of his blood and this part in cleansing has been imparted through baptism. How how bizarre it would be for us to just drift into the muddy field of sin and ungodliness again. Third, ever since he engrafted us into his body, we must take a special care not to disfigure ourselves who are his members with any spot or blemish. This is particularly striking, I think. What's the reason why we must take a special care not to disfigure ourselves? Well, because we've been engrafted into his body. We are his hands, his feet. We're the members of his body. So we disfigure ourselves, you're disfiguring Christ. Here, uh, Calvin is picking up the theology of the Apostle Paul and others, other New Testament writers, which he himself has expounded earlier in the Institutes, that we, are, we gain all the benefits of Christ only because we're united with him by faith. We're members of his body. We're part of this organic union with the living Lord Jesus Christ, the head. So what does that mean? Well, it means if I scar myself, I'm scarring Christ. And how do I scar myself? Well, not physically, obviously, but if I disfigure myself with sin and ungodliness, I'm disfiguring Christ in the world. The church is Christ in the world. How do people meet Jesus walking around Fort Worth today? How do people meet Jesus wherever it is that you live? They meet Jesus by meeting a member of his body. They encounter Christ in his church. And so every single foot we put wrong disfigures not just us, but Christ in the eyes of the world. Fourth, ever since Christ himself, who is our head, ascended into heaven, it behooves us, having laid aside love of earthly things, wholeheartedly to aspire heavenward. Don't you want to be where Christ is? I wonder if it's that relational thought again that Calvin has hinted at before, that we lose that closeness of relationship with God through Christ when we don't aspire to be where he is. Do you want to uh, lay aside those uh, ungodly things of the world? It's Colossians 3 language, isn't it? Since we've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things where you've been raised to. It's bizarre and unfitting to set our minds on the place we've been raised from. Fifth, ever since the Holy Spirit dedicated us as temples to God, we must take care that God's glory shine through us. Well, that's what temple's for, isn't it? A temple is a place where the glory of God dwells. You have a precious role in being one of the stones in the temple in and through which the glory of God shines into the world. How could you fail to take up 
the responsibilities and the opportunities that you've been given. Every day, in every relationship, every conversation you have with your husband or wife, every interaction you have with your siblings or your friends at work or your neighbours, everything you do in public, everything you do in private, every single time, this is an opportunity for you to shine forth the glory of the living God as one of the living stones in the temple that the Spirit is building. What, like that's, what a precious opportunity you have right now, whatever it is that you're doing, to shine forth that glory uh, untainted and not to be, quote, defiled with the filthiness of sin. And then finally, number six, ever since both our souls and our bodies were destined for heavenly incorruption and an unfading crown, we ought to strive manfully to keep them pure and corrupted until the day of the Lord. In other words, where are you going exactly? All right, we're going to a place of purified, resurrected, perfectly holy life with Christ in the presence of the living God. And so well, we should start acting like it, shouldn't we? We want to be fixing our lives on the destination that we're going to, not just our minds. We don't want to just get our theology right so that we believe in the final resurrection and the last judgment. We want to get our lives aligned with our theology so that we believe in the resurrection of all things by living out that resurrected life now. So that takes us to the end of section three. There's a couple more sections which I'll make a couple of brief comments about and then we'll conclude. Um, section four, one of the things that um, Calvin points out is that the Christian life is, this is a summary of the, of the section. The Christian life is not a matter of the tongue, but of the inmost heart. And here he calls attention to what I think is probably a particular danger for some of us, some of us who love theology. Um, he talks of those who have pretended the knowledge of Christ uh, while they learnedly and volubly prate about the gospel. Uh, his point is, it's a doctrine not of the tongue, but of life. What Calvin's doing here is highlighting something which he speaks about elsewhere, that there's something uh, incongruous and unfitting about a mouth that speaks great and deep and even true and wonderful things about the living God in conjunction with a life that doesn't live it. We ought to keep our theology and keep our lives in line with each other. The worst example of this, of course, is just outright hypocrisy. It's possible to be full of like high-sounding high thoughts and exhortations to be God, to godliness and, and uh, high-sounding thoughts of theological truth and wisdom, while actually in secret, perhaps, our lives are a thousand miles away from what they ought to be. But there's a more subtle form of it where we are trying to get every theological I and T dotted and crossed and trying to discuss and debate and read about and think about all kinds of complex matters of Christian theology, where in fact we are failing in basic, basic matters of Christian godliness. It's just somehow not right to have, it's like a young man wearing a pair of trousers which is seven sizes too big for him and imagine that he's fully grown. He's, you're not fully grown because you're wearing the wrong size trousers. The, the wrong size trousers in that context are the, the high sounding theological words coming from a mouth that's connected to a body that doesn't live them out. And so, well, let's not stop doing with the theology, right? Let's start doing more of the Christian living that makes that theology appropriate. And then finally, the last section, He's, he uh, picks up the obvious question about, okay, so what happens when I fail? Um, 
he, the section is headed imperfection and the endeavor of the Christian life. You know, after all that he's just said, you could easily beat yourself to death, couldn't you, with um, feeling like such a wretch, feeling like how far I've got to go. And here Calvin uh, reveals his pastoral heart and the kind of realism of a man who's lived the Christian life for a good number of years and has pastored many, many other people who've been striving to do the same. He knows that we will fail. And yet somehow he manages to combine that acknowledgement with not letting his foot off the gas pedal in exhorting us to strive for faithfulness. Here's what he says. Let each one of us proceed according to the measure of his puny capacity. There we are. And set out upon the journey we have begun. We've begun that journey. Well, let's get going on it. He continues. No one shall set out so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway, though it be slight. That is the substance of how many self-help books? Not in a Christian context, of course, but Calvin is the original life coach, Christian life coach, that is. This is like the 1% rule. Um, I, I don't know where I first heard this, but um, like if you could make today 1% better than yesterday, 1% is not much. 1% is a trifling amount. But if we could make some small step forward today, that would be great. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because then you'd be able to embrace what I think it was Einstein called the miracle of the eighth miracle wonder of the world, um, the miracle of compound interest. You know, if every day we made 0.1% progress in some aspect of our relationship, and then you just keep doing that for a year. Just imagine how you'd be transformed. You can't measure godliness in those kinds of terms, but it's, it's not numerical terms. It's the little things. What is it that you could do today, which would be some headway, though it be slight? And then, then he continues, Therefore, let us not cease so to act that we may make some unceasing progress in the way of the Lord. And let us not despair at the slightness of our success. So there you are. That's the first of these chapters. That's chapter six. Um, let us try something today. What tiny thing is it that you might have been reminded of that you might have been stirred to reflect about more carefully or to act on more determinedly just through thinking through this stuff with Calvin in the last half hour or so. Is there anything, is there one thing that you could action today? You think, actually, yeah, that would be 1% improvement. Well, go to it. And may the Lord bless you as you do. I think that'll do us for now. We'll be back next week with chapter seven, uh, which I love chapter seven and chapter eight of this um, part of Calvin's Institute. So join us again next time. But for now, God bless.